This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that brings you deep dive interviews with the motorcycle industry insiders and racers that make the sport move. I'm host Dale Spangler, and this week my guest is Dave Ginolfi, marketing and event specialist for the legendary motocross brand 100%. This episode is brought to you by Moto America. See the fastest racing on two wheels. It's Moto America Superbikes at Ridge Motorsports Park, June 23rd through the 25th with five racing classes, including 190 mile per hour superbikes and round two of the Super Hooligan National Championship. It's fun for the entire family with available VIP packages for the ultimate fan experience, including rider meet and greet and a free swag bag. It's Moto America Superbikes at Ridge Motorsports Park, June 23rd through the 25th. Reserve your tickets and camping spot today at MotoAmerica.com. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome Dave Ginolfi to Pit Pass Moto. Dave, how are you today? And how was your weekend at round two there at Hangtown? Hey, Dale. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on this. I'm excited to be here. Cool that you pronounced my last name correctly. It doesn't happen <laughs> often. Um, yeah, round two was good. I mean, the obvious, it was hot, it was dry. But other than that, it was it's motocross and it was fun. Yeah, like I think I caught you on the, uh, the broadcast there before, I think maybe the second moto handing some goggles to Jet Lawrence. And it looked like he was kind of like indecisive. You know, what? tell us a little bit about what your job entails as far as like these, you know, these last minute, even last second decisions on eyewear on the starting line. Yeah, so for that, actually, it was just the difference between a clear lens and like a smoke tint. He was running smoke all day in practice, but then on the sight lap, I gave him a clear one just so he could see the difference. And when he came in, I asked him and he, you know, he thought about it for a second and I just reminded him like, hey, that sight lap goggle was clear. And he's like, yeah, let's just go with clear then. So honestly, I think if I had given him a tint one for the site lap, he probably would have went tint. I don't think it was that big of a deal. It was just kind of whatever for him at that moment. Yeah, I'm always fascinated, um, you know, because you and I kind of had that in common, you know, being goggle technicians, if you want to call us that. But I did that for some years at Smith. And so, like, it's incredible how each rider is so particular on their eyewear choices and whether it's lens tint or how many tear-offs, whether they actually use roll-offs or not. And so, yeah, talk a little bit about that, because I always think that's just a really fascinating aspect of pro racers, because it's such a critical item. You know, like if you lose your goggles, you know, your, your moto is pretty much over for the most part. Yeah, for sure. We always kind of joke and say, you know, goggles, they don't they don't win races, but they can lose a race. You know, obviously in a mud race, they can help win a race. But again, it, it falls back to they don't win a race, they lose a race. So it, it is very critical. It's probably, you know, one of the less expensive parts of the whole race program for those guys, but one of the most crucial. So uh, kind of high stress environment for us goggle technicians, as you put it. But um, yeah, everyone has a different preference, whether it's clear lens tint like a smoke um the tear-offs that they use i mean we like to put as many on and we always try to remind them like 
hey, it might look a little cloudy when you have 28 tear offs on there, <laughs> but you could always take them off. Like we can't put more on once that gate drops. So let's start with as much as we can. And then if, you know, just start pulling them as you need them. That's so true. I was watching the MXGP over the weekend as well. And I saw like quite a few of your athletes had roll-offs and looked like they had a stack of like 10 to 15 at least over the top of their roll-offs. Like for those out there that might not be as familiar with roll-offs, like tell us a little bit about that. Cause I noticed hundred percent has taken that product and kind of built upon it and made it even better. Yeah. I mean, we're really happy with our forecast system. Like you said, it's pretty improved. It's your common roll-off setup, but then we also have this shield that's like just another extra protection you put over it, which then allows you to put a bunch of stacks of laminated tear-offs on there. So it's kind of best of both worlds in those conditions. Do they even have, uh, I remember at one point they had some lenses that were made specifically for those dimpled lenses where it actually held the film just slightly off the goggle surface. So if there's any moisture that got in there, the roll-offs would still work. And so is there something like that you guys are improving on the whole system as well? Yeah. So we still have those lens for our, our Gen 2 goggle. So that's going to be right under the, the Armega, which is our high-end goggle. But then the way the forecast is designed kind of does what you just said without having the dimples in there. It just keeps it off of the lens a little bit there to, you know, so water can't stick to it. That's, that's what you're trying to prevent in that situation is water getting behind it and then sticking up on that lens. Yeah, it's hard to believe there could be that much detail on a pair of goggles, right? I remember uh, learning some really good tricks back in the day from Greg Albertine. You know, he came over from Europe and was racing the nationals here. And he had me like taping, you know, making these like little water dams to where if water got on the top of the goggle, it would roll off to the sides and drip down. Yep. So <laughs> it's just... It's pretty unbelievable. But let's talk a little bit about what your actual role there is at 100%. I think you're like event and marketing manager for the moto division. Yeah. So like, like I always try to tell people we, um, it's more of like a committee behind the scenes. Like there's not one person making the decision unless at the end of the day, it's Ludo, you know, CEO of the company. But as far as like, we get together and we all give our opinions and listen to each other. And then we kind of make a decision together on whether it's riders or events or other strategies of the sort. But yeah, my role is I kind of keep track of all the moto marketing type stuff, whether it's riders contracts and bonuses and the events and just all that kind of sports marketing on the moto side. So you're on the road a lot, I would assume then too, with that position. Yeah. uh, Originally, I wasn't going to be, but it looks like this summer I will be hitting all the all the outdoors. You're the road warrior this year, huh? (laughs) We have we have John Cuso, who's, you know, been doing it forever. And he's, you know, a huge asset to the team. So he handles mostly everything and I'm kind of just there to lend a hand. Yeah, we kind of did something similar to that when I, at my time at Smith. There's three of us, Rich Taylor, I'm sure you know Rich, and and then Mark Ferris, who's there forever. So between the three of us, we would just kind of alternate because it's tough, you know, going to a full Supercross and outdoor season. I mean, that just grinds you down after a while for sure. Yeah, and it's like, it'd be nice to come back and take Monday off, but you know, Monday's usually my busiest to get everything ready for the next weekend type of thing. So it's not to like a Wednesday, you can kind of chill out. Yep. So just to kind of back up, you're a former professional racer turned industry guy, and you grew up in, uh, I think it's Lake Hopatcong. I don't even know how to pronounce that one. That's a tough one. New Jersey, just outside of the New York City metropolitan area. So did you grow up racing moto in that area? And you know, how did you get your start? Yep. So it's it's Lake Hopatcong, Native American Indian name, of course. But um, I was like 10 years old or maybe eight years old. Nobody in my family raced. So it was just like me thinking dirt bikes were cool. And then I played sports like football and, and, you know, those kind of sports. So the next progression was let's get a dirt bike. And then right away, I want to be competitive with it. So, you know, we show up at a race, not knowing anything about it happens to be English town, which is like one of the tougher tracks in New Jersey. And it was 
it was the New Jersey state championship. So it was a big event, really hard track and it was really muddy. And I think I made it like a half a lap and that was it for the day. And my dad just assumed like that was, you know, that's going to be the end of it. But then, um, I was addicted to it at that point. So it was just, you know, every weekend we started racing and then it was the next year was like, you know, let's try this Loretta Lynn thing. And I only got as far as to the regional and didn't make it. But then the next year made it to Loretta's a couple of years later, it's, you know, top tens and then in the top five and then podiums at mini O's qualify for outdoors and so on and so forth. But yeah, so it was a, I feel like a pretty average progression. So is this is probably like pre training facility period, right? Or were there, were there starting to be some of those facilities popping up here and there? Yeah, this was before that. So I started racing in, it was like 1992 or 93. So I think facilities popped up around like 0102 privately. And then I think GPF maybe launched in like 0203, like kind of for the public. No, this was pre that. So I didn't go anywhere for the winter living in New Jersey. It was just, you know, you race on the weekends, winter comes around. I snowboard every day of my life until the season starts again. And that's it. Yeah, it's so wild to kind of look at how things were then and then how they are now, because it's so regimented now where I feel like you, as an amateur, you're almost like, here's your path. Like, here's all the steps you need to take. Here's everything you need to do. Here's everything you need to eat. You know, I mean, it's just so different. Like back then, I felt like we just sort of just did what we thought was right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the internet, it's definitely taken a lot of the guesswork out of things. For sure. You made it to the pro level and started in 2001. I look like in the 125 class, did some outdoor nationals and maybe a couple supercrosses here and there. So were you kind of aspiring to just take that standard motocross and supercross path for your career at that time? No, not at all. I mean, like I always tell people my first national I went to was the one I raced in. So like, again, having not a background in moto, like me and my dad really didn't know how it all worked. (laughs) And we just did it because it was fun. He, He was supportive and that was kind of our hobby together. And I just progressed to the level I was at, but there was never aspirations of like, oh, I'm going to make it. Like it wasn't even a thought. It wasn't like I'm going to make it or I'm not going to make it. It was just, oh yeah, we're just racing on the weekends. Wow. That's really cool because I feel like that's a lot of pressure sometimes for young racers when that pressure is there. Like, oh, am I going to make it? You know, because personally my my dad and I kind of made a pact, you know, if I didn't have a factory ride in three years when I started turning pro, then it was time to look, you know, to move on and start looking at something else. And so it's kind of got to be sort of nice in a way to have that pressure removed, I would assume. Yeah, I never had it. So I can't, I can't say if it, you know, I'm sure it's not fun, but you know, my dad had a gas station car repair shop that I worked at my whole life. So like, you know, I had a job, so to speak. So it was, you know, had it, I worked, raced and yeah, again, that's just what we did. It's almost like a, it was a bonus for you to be racing then in a way. Yeah, it was. And I, sometimes I wonder though, it was like, obviously I didn't get to that next level, but I was might've been a curse. I was just good enough to keep going. I feel like if I maybe stopped earlier and got into like a real career, things could be different for me now, but no regrets. I'm happy completely. Yeah. I wanted to bring this up because I, you know, it's, it's somewhat relevant right now. So it looks like in 2006, you had a pretty bad injury where you tore your Achilles tendon. So I feel like if anyone knows what Eli Tomac is going through right now, it's you. Mm-hmm. So like, tell, tell us about what was that recovery like? I mean, it just had to be brutal. So for me personally, the bad thing was I just came off a torn ACL. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was set to do Supercross that year. And like, bikes were good. Training was good. Like everything was good. And it was the week before the, you know, the first round I was going to do in California, I just put my foot out wrong and tore my ACL. So, you know, I had the cadaver put in, like went really aggressive with physical therapy to get back as soon as I could, which I think it was like a three to four month thing. It was like, it was really fast. Oh, wow. And then I think I was riding only about a month or so and tore my Achilles and for it to be back to back, that definitely wasn't fun. But the way I did it was like, 
there was this jump that you kind of land out in flat ground, like nothing crazy whatsoever. I was probably on the fifth lap of practice at a local race. And all of a sudden I landed and felt this huge sting go up the back of my leg. And then it's like, oh wait, okay, maybe it went away. But then like you realize you can't really use your, I can't put pressure down on the foot peg. So like, you know, I come down into the, into the pits and I tell my dad, I'm like, there's something wrong like with my leg. I don't know what it is. And like, you know, you limp off the bike and then trying to evaluate what it is. I realized when I pushed on my Achilles, it was just like mush. Like it wasn't an Achilles anymore. So I went and got checked out the next day. And yeah, I, I tore it to some degree. I mean, I needed like a full surgery, but a lot of people, I guess when they tear it, it, it like wraps or ravels up into their calf, which mine didn't do. So I'm assuming that would be worse. I don't know if Eli's did that or not. But yeah, so they sewed it all up. And the worst part about that is compared to an ACL, like ACL, you get the surgery and you kind of start physical therapy like that week, basically. But with the Achilles, I had to be like in a cast for, I don't know if it was a month. I can't remember what, what it was, but it was like, you're sitting there doing nothing for a really long time. And that was the hardest thing. Wow. Just had to probably reattach before you could even put any weight on it whatsoever. Yep. So that was... um. Yeah, that was tough. And then I remember when I finally got released to ride, just the confidence of that was really hard. Like, because again, it's like, I didn't do anything wrong for it to, you know, tear or whatever the first time. So you're just always like, man, is it going to, is it going to do it again? Like, I don't know. Cause I don't know why it did it the first time. Do you still have any residual kind of effects or is that you notice it once in a while still or? No, not anymore. I just, it's like twice the size of my, my other one that didn't get injured. <laughs> I think it's just the way they sewed it. They sewed it up like so thick. It's like, it's, that's the only thing, but no, no. Um, I mean, range of motion is all there and everything's fine. So then after that injury, it sounds like it took probably a good year between the two injuries there before you were able to kind of get back on the bike and start rolling again. And then is that when you kind of decided to focus more on the uh, arena cross series? Because I noticed in 2009, a couple of years later there, you you end up winning a lights championship. Yeah, I feel like you've done, you're really good at doing your homework here. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. So after those injuries, so this puts me into like, yeah, like you said, a whole year. So now I'm released to ride after the Achilles and it's like October and I just turned 25. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go down south to GPF and I'm just going to race like the Winter Am series. So I could do the vet class now. So if I can make contingency in the plus 25, the 250A and the 450A, like I could do all right. Because, you know, some local guys like Barry Karsten, Damian Plotz, like they kind of showed me that path. So that was my intentions. And then Josh Woods had a arena cross team and someone got hurt or something happened and they needed a rider. And I'd been messing around on the arena cross track and I was always really good at technical stuff more so than like just going really fast. So I'd pra- I, I would just play around on the arena cross track with them. And he asked me if I wanted to go fill in, thought about it for a minute. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll go do it. It didn't go well. It was definitely an eye opening experience. Like I thought I'd come in, not cocky, but like, I was like, I've never really heard of many of these people. I just got done doing outdoors and all that. So I thought I had an upper hand, but I, I didn't at all. I don't even know if I qualified for the first night. Second night I qualified and like the money was pretty good. So then I started doing the math and thinking, well, they're going to help my like pay for the travel and I can make cash every weekend. It seemed pretty fun. And then that was like half of the 07 season. And then I went in full on 08, learned a bunch. And then 09, yeah, I was able to win one of those lights championships they had. Yeah, it would have been a kind of a moment of synchronicity in a way for you to end up kind of landing that position on that team with, you know, with Josh Woods. And then one thing leads to another. You win your first title and then it seemed like you were grinding for another few more years. And then 2015 rolls around and you win a second title six years later. Mm-hmm. But then right around that same time, you accepted your first job in the industry with Scott Motorsports. So how did this sort of real job, we'll put that in air quotes, in the industry 
come about? I imagine that had to have been a tough decision for you. It was, and probably right around, maybe like 2012, that job got offered to me. I'm really good friends with John Knowles. Like I've known him before he was at Scott, just from the same area. And he used to run a track that I would go race at. So we're, we're always been good friends. So yeah, it was like 2012, he offered me that job and it just wasn't really something I was looking to do yet. So, you know, passed me by, no big deal. And then I was still racing arena cross. And like you said, those two championships were far apart, but that was because they had a rule that if you were top 10 in like the premier class, you couldn't ride the lights class. Oh, yeah, I remember that. So in 2000, after I won that championship in 2009, I set my goals to be a top 10 premier class athlete. So that's what I did, you know, some top 10 seasons those next couple of years. And then 2015, I realized I can make more money if I just stayed outside the top 10 in the premier class, but still race the lights class. So that's kind of the, the strategy there. But so then at 2015, uh, John Knowles again said, hey, I think this position is going to open up. Like, what do you think? And in 2015, Arena Cross ends in May. Me and my wife are expecting our first child in June. My dad's been asking me for years, like, what's your plan? What's your plan with like a career? So then it just kind of seemed like, all right, like, I think it's time to now see what's up with a real career. Got another mouth to feed, right? <laughs> yeah. And just job security, like the whole, you know, the whole thing. 16 years in your professional career combined. So, I mean, you had a good, that's a pretty good long career, I'd say. Yeah. And I was already, I was in my thirties at this point. So it's not like I was giving anything up. Yeah. This statement here, would you say this is true for you? Once a racer, always a racer, even if it's only mentally? Yeah, that's definitely true. And I didn't think it was at the time because once that arena cross season ended and I accepted that job, like I didn't ride or anything and I thought I'd be fine. And then I realized I was having like slight identity crisis. <laughs> I started road biking a lot, like cycling and got really into that, but not necessarily in a positive way. I think it was more of a negative way, but my wife had to point that out for me to realize it. And then I was, that's when I realized like, man, I just traded one thing to another. And it was, I was still living that like selfish athlete lifestyle. I did the same thing. It's funny you say that. Cause I was almost identical. I started road cycling and then I was like, I ran two marathons. Like I just needed something yeah. to focus on and, you know, have a goal or whatever. But exactly after a while, I was kind of like, well, I guess this is, you know, that is my new identity now. I am, I am in like an industry guy. So the transition definitely could be tough for some racers and other racers seem like they just you know, disappear. You never see them again, you know, uh, some of them stick around and stay in the industry. For me, it's been my whole life. So it's like hard for me to imagine doing something else. Same here. I mean, like I said, since I was eight or nine or whatever it was, like I was just addicted to it. And it's, I've never lost that. I've never been one of, even though I don't, I don't have a bike and I don't ride now, but I'm not one of those guys who like acts like they're over it. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't have the time and I have two kids now and whatever, but no, like I, I truly love it. Like it still feels the same way it did when I was a kid. Before you finish today's episode, first we have a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. So you got your start then with Scott, you know, you, that was your foot in the door and great company. Like, like I think both of us know that they were always around when I was up in Sun Valley working for Smith and just a great bunch of people. I was friends with a lot of them. And then you had this opportunity in April of 2022 to move over to hundred percent. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that and how that all came about. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, Scott, I was there for, I think just shy of eight years. I believe. And then I was at an amateur race and 
you know, one of the people from 100% asked me, you know, if I was interested or if they, if I could help f them find somebody. And I, you know, I thought about it, but I didn't really know anyone. And then a couple months later, I run into him again. And he was like, Hey, what would it take for you to come over? And we kind of just like laughed it off. And I didn't really think about it. And it was one of those amateur events I was at that was like a week long. So like he had a couple, couple days to keep asking me about it. And then finally I thought about it and I was like, you know what? Like that's a really cool progressive company. And I, I feel like I still have a lot to learn. And that was kind of where my head was, my headspace was at for that. So I just told him like, I don't really need much, just this, this, and this. And then like a week later, they asked me to come down. I met with Ludo, who I really clicked with and Mark, and then all of a sudden I was hired. So it's kind of how it went. Yeah. I mean, the company's such a legendary brand. I mean, like the guys you're just talking about, I mean, they're legends in the sport. It just seems like, gosh, it's just been explosive growth for the company too. It's just such a marketing machine. I saw where you guys are really pushing into snow now. You got running stuff, baseball stuff, cycling. I mean, it's just, the brand has really just exploded, hasn't it? Yeah, it is. And what's cool is like, we're in all those segments, like you mentioned, but it's still the same product. Like it's still just eyewear. Yep. Like we, we keep true to what we're good at. Yeah. Pick one thing and be good at it. Right. I feel like that's hard for some brands to do because they want to be everything to everyone, yeah. you know, and then they end up kind of diluting everything. Yep. What's the most challenging part of your job though? Uh, I mean, for me, it's just the tra having a family and traveling. That's the hardest part of my job. Every, everything else I fully enjoy it. And I enjoy the travel. It's, I think the saying is, I love traveling, but I hate leaving. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Well, I was thinking maybe it was building goggles, but I'm sure that's pretty easy for you, but it's just a lot of like, it's tedious. And I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into just a single race, the preparation with all the pairs of goggles. Back in my day, it was a brand new pair of goggles every time the rider got on the motorcycle. So I don't know if that's probably still the case, but I imagine so. For the most part, we usually collect our goggles back, throw them in the wash, you know, put them in front of a fan, let them dry out for a day and then rebuild them. So I'd say they get about four or five rounds in them before you really need to bust out some new ones. Wow, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we the riders we had that in Smith were like, every time they got on the bike, they had to have a brand new pair. It was just like, I don't want anything that's been sweated in. Yeah. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. No, luckily, yeah, we definitely wash them, but yes. <laughs> so I think I also saw where you're also a riding coach occasionally. Yeah. I mean, that's something I'd always done since I was probably like, 18 or 19. Actually, it was again through John Knowles when he had that track. He was like, Hey, why don't we do like a riding school? And he was the first one to pitch it to me. So it was just, you know, two teenagers, not the most professional setup, but we did it and it was successful. And then I started doing a couple other here and there, but I really, I didn't like the big groups of people. Like I wanted to connect more with like a one-on-one -on -one rider. So, yeah, I mean, you know, people here and there, like ask if you'll give lessons or whatever you would. But then I started training. There was a female racer here in Salt Lake, Taylor Allred, that I linked up with. Oh, yeah. Her, yeah, her and her brother. For them, it wasn't even like a riding coach. It was more like off the bike accountability, kind of. Like I wouldn't call myself a personal trainer by any means because I don't have a degree in it, but I definitely showed them the path and helped keep them accountable and kind of set up like just what they should be doing at the track. Almost like an experienced coach, really, because they're just tapping into like, you've been there, done that. You know, you've been through all those situations. So it's nice to have that insight from somebody who's done that. Exactly. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take my experience and things I learned. And of course, there's better ways of doing it, but at least try and give them some, you know, expedite the process for them as much as I could. Well, I would imagine, you know, overall, you've had some pretty incredible memories from your racing career and now your industry career, but are there uh, any any that stand out to you as just, you know, some of your favorite moments? Um, I mean, qualifying for your first pro national, I think is always memorable. 
So that one, that was 2001 Broom Tioga for me. Broom. Oh, I love that track. So many people are like, I hate that track, but I actually loved it. So (laughs) I loved it too. And especially on that national weekend, they would groom it really well. But uh, yeah, that was a good one for me. I mean, led some laps at Loretta Lynn's, I could remember in the, I think it was the A class. Uh, Arena Cross, the championships were fun. I mean, that's really just, you know, a collection of moments like that. Yeah. And Arena Cross is just such a more family atmosphere. I always enjoyed going to those two because it seemed like everybody was pretty tight knit and hung out afterwards. And of course, I don't know if that happens anymore either. But yeah, it was always fun traveling around with the Arena Cross crew. Yeah. I think at that point, you know, for the most part, the guys in Arena Cross kind of know where they're at in the sport and they they can kind of loosen up a little bit. So if you weren't, I I always like to ask this question of my guests, uh, if you weren't involved still in, in motorsports, is there something else outside of that that uh, you're passionate about that might potentially fill that, you know, moto void? I think it would be, I would definitely be some kind of personal trainer or coach. Like I like being in shape and I like helping people get in shape. So I think that would, that would be my career path. Well, you, you said something about you grew up snowboarding too. So you got to be loving it being in Salt Lake City now, Park City area. I've only been once in eight years. Oh, so. really? no. <laughs> yeah, it's just again, one of those things. It's like, if I'm leaving my family to go do that. I might as well leave them to go race a dirt bike or something. So I just <laughs> kind of try and, you know, be home as much as I can. Yeah, understood. I think I also saw where you were part of a, the Larry H. Miller cycling team in Salt Lake. Are you still on board with those guys? And that seems like a pretty legit team. Yeah, no, that team is is sick. I'm really good friends with Zane Miller, the the son of Larry H. Miller, who runs it. So uh, I think I'm I have like a lifelong membership status. I haven't ridden with them much, but they every year he just he gets me one of their cycling kits and he's in 100% goggle or glasses that whole team is now too, so. Nice. Yeah. Honorary member, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, man, I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, sharing some of your story and, you know, what you do with your job, you know, in the industry and some of your career highlights and uh it's just great to have people like you in the industry that are passionate about it and really give back and i think it probably makes a difference i'm sure all your athletes appreciate your enthusiasm and what you put into it so uh, any last words uh, you'd like to share though before we close this episode no i mean I, i'm impressed with like i said you doing your homework and this was very very fun and smooth well thanks again dave and uh we'll have to have you back again sometime soon and we can uh you know talk about some more details on uh, maybe after the season's over see if uh, jet can go perfect season at this rate it seems like he's it's a possibility i mean it's definitely a possibility but 22 and 0 would be i mean that's no joke so we'll see right on well thanks again dave i appreciate your time today all right thank you If you enjoyed this episode be sure to follow pit pass moto on your favorite podcast listening app so you never miss an episode and if you have a moment please rate and review our show we'd appreciate it you can also follow us on social media or visit pitpassmoto.com where you can listen to past episodes and purchase your very own pit pass moto swag this has been a production of evergreen podcasts a special thank you to tommy boy helverson and the production team at wessler media i'm dale spangler I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of Pit Pass Moto. Thanks for listening.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.